0: Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves.
1: My name is May Alkaruni, and I'm the CEO and founder of Globechain. So Globechain is a B2B reuse marketplace. So we connect corporate companies to charities and small businesses to reuse and redistribute unneeded items and we focus in three main sectors retail construction and hospitality and it's everything from fixtures and fittings obsolete stuff built environment construction material and office refurbs to um chandeliers from hotels and uh, restaurant refurbs Um, go for it sorry
0: (laughs) so how old are you now how old is got globe chain now GlobeChain is actually five years so
1: um, I set it up um, five years ago and I actually had to bootstrap it so I bootstrapped it and self-financed it for four years Um, the main reason is because there wasn't um, an industry at the time and there was no market cap so when I actually went for funding naively I thought they would fund it and they were like what's your market cap and I was like oh there isn't one I'm creating a new economy Um, but I was so adamant that this was going to exist And um, like our strapline is commercial with a conscience, businesses are going to move forwards and build their foundations based on being conscious about and being responsible about the environment and and impact. Um, But at the same time, they still need to make profits. So that was kind of the ethos and the drive of pursuing it for so long uh, with no funding.
0: (laughs) So take me back to the very beginning. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to you as part of, in the context of our radical rethink, like our initiative for new ideas. So I want to hear about the beginning when you had uh, the idea and what it was
1: yeah sure so um i actually my background is investment banking so i used to work for an investment bank and they moved offices across the road so we kept the buildings Um uh, we just moved to to a bigger space and the facilities people came around and said you know pick your new carpet color tile you know the square tiles uh blue or blue basically was the color and <laughs> do the shade of blue um you know pick your table chair computer and it was crazy and i was like well, what are you doing with all this furniture like Why? Do you just send it over the other side of the? The road. And, um, you know, in those days, obviously banks spent a lot of money <laughs> and didn't really care about the cost of anything. So they said, no, we're getting new stuff and this stuff's going to be disposed of. And upon talking to them further, um, I found out that it costs around £50,000 per person to make that move. We have 300 people in the building. So that is everything, right? It's kind of the whole process and supply chain of buying new goods, labor, moving, disposal costs. And it just got me thinking. Why is no one digitalized waste? and connected these companies to charities and businesses and people who needed the stuff it was perfectly good and expensive it wasn't cheap furniture um and it was a time where like airbnb and uber were just becoming famous so i just thought why can't we do that in the waste industry because it was quite archaic at the time right uh, there wasn't much technology in those days and i just thought let me try and set up a little project on the side and see who's interested in testing it so while i was working in the bank uh, i spent 800 pounds uh, with a web developer and designed a very basic prototype and sent a couple of emails out and weirdly the first uh company to cut come on board and test it and kind of pioneer it, if you like was arcadia group which is top shop uh with fixtures and fittings because um i actually went in and said listen hey you know deep in furniture how much does it cost you and actually it was um is not the problem. We've got a real problem with fixtures and fittings. We have no storage. Costs, they're very bespoke. It costs millions of pounds a year to dispose of these items. And I just thought, who would want fixtures and fittings? Small business shops and charities. Um, so I went about um, building manually um, a group of charities and businesses to fit around those fixtures, and that's how it started. So there's a, a big misconception of how marketplaces just happen. Um, there's a lot of manual building up supply and demand at the beginning. So it was a, it was hard work, but uh, worth it.
0: You, you've you made it sound incredibly easy to go from idea to business model. <laughs> so can you t- unpick a little or maybe dig down a little bit yeah. about what, what you see as some essential steps that happened along the way from yeah. that original radical, actually, let's, you know, let's digitize waste. Let's figure out a way to connect these people up. Um and, uh, and then as you were growing too, there's probably some other mini steps in there as you went from working with Arcadia to looking at how you were going yeah. to build on that 800 pound website and, and yeah, go for investment. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I
1: mean, 800 pounds was my kind of budget at the time. I don't ask why it was for 800 and I thought, let me see. And, um, really I, I think, uh, the way it happened is because I was solving a problem I physically saw in person rather than just creating idea i see a lot of entrepreneurs that want to be entrepreneurs um, and they're trying to create businesses for the sake of it and i think the more powerful businesses are the ones where you really solve a problem that you've either encountered seen or had pe- a pain about um, whether that's in your community or whatever so that was like the first trigger the second one for sure it's like your gut instinct Um, really like, you know, it's the only thing really when there's no business and no benchmarks, the only thing that drives you right is that kind of feeling of like, Oh, this could be a thing. And then obviously do a bit of research. So I did, you know, this kind of going from idea to 800 pound website took a year like it's not you know this is this is beyond the five years we've been trading uh you know in essence it's been seven years but the first year was me still working and you know thinking about it just on weekends drawing rough sketches getting my brother who's an architect by the way to design up a site uh you know like not knowing anything about ux ui or anything but it's just like if i was a user what would i want from a very basic site and when i mean very basic when like minimal viable product, do a minimal viable product. Like you don't need bells and whistles. You don't need it to look great. If I showed you what the first globe chain site looked like, I don't even know how corporate said yes to it. You know, like it would—you'd laugh at it if I showed you. Um, and I look back and go, "Wow, <laughs> we've come far from that." But that's with no technical experience as well. You know, I, I didn't know anything about ways. Didn't know anything about technical. Do you know, my background's like finance. So. Um, So that was interesting, but actually what that helped with was getting involved in the product and the design and having to do the testing with the web developer and so on. It's painful, like every weekend I'd spend hours testing the site for, you know, all the functionality. But what that made me do is learn about what was annoying about the site and what was good and what was bad. Um, and that process, that first year, really it took around six to nine months for that web developer to build it, because it was one person, right, outsourced. Um, and then I would test it, and then the kind of the year after, it was about going out and thinking, okay, who would, who's got waste? Who's got problems I think has a problem. Um, And I thought, let me try some retailers. Let me try some offices. So I sent out a lot of emails, you know, with a very, very short blurb about this is my idea. Have you got a problem with it? It's very like, it was a very honest email. It's like, it was me on my own. You know, it's not like, Hey, we're a massive company. And I'm pretending to be five people. I just went out like, I'm doing this. Like, is this an interesting? And, you know, I I got a lot of uh, feedback. Actually, one of the interesting things um, I did that's a little bit, not irrelevant, but it it just shows you the way you uh, write to to companies. I used to put um, managing director, which is really old school, on on my emails and I got no responses. And then one day I was like, let me put CEO see if it makes a difference and i got a 10% take up just on changing that um so so think about how you're writing it like i get loads of emails through now and i don't look at one of them because they're just so badly written so i think it's really important to know your customer so if you're working with companies write in professional formal company speak You know, because that's how people expect it. Uh, You know, startups are very informal in their manner. And and for a consumer side, I think that works, you know, because you're engaging, but really think of your terminology. Um, on it because it makes such a difference on email so I think that helped a lot coming from a corporate background myself and you know I had a lot of training like uh, you know like everybody doesn't want to work in corporate but I always say to like interns that come in that want to work in startups I'm like go and work for a corporate first three and a half learn the structure learn from um the mistakes there because it doesn't matter when you're going to start up it's crazy and the pressure and the emotions is is like on another level so um, all that kind of needs to take into consideration when you're doing it um, but also I made a decision very early long a lot early along while uh, doing the testing on the site is do I want a co-founder or not I think that's quite an important stage um pros and cons i've had experience of working with co-founders and it's not gone well for me but that, i would say that's more about ego and and management and power struggles rather than business so you make sure if you are working with someone the trust is there but also straight away even when i'm on my own you know i had shareholder agreements i had assignment forms for outsourced web development to make sure that the ip was mine you know all these are like Alarm bells if web developers don't want to give you their coding that they're coding for you. You know, it's your idea, it's you know, that's how they should work because why would they want it? So, be very careful about uh, intellectual property. So, always, you know, however much you can spend, spend on legals. Um, for sure, it's been like a lifesaver for me in the past. And you know, as much as it's really expensive and you think lawyers are useless. You know, it will happen. There'll be a time where you fall out with a co-founder or, you know, a company doesn't pay you or something. So whatever you can afford, put as much legal and intellectual property and structure in place right at the beginning because it becomes expensive and really hard to incorporate it afterwards. So whatever you're doing, idea, do a bit of research on what you need to protect. Um, Um, and what needs to be part of the business. Obviously, I got a website and I trademarked it and I trademarked my logo quite quickly. That can be done very cheaply. You don't need lawyers for that. You just need an understanding of you know the classes for say trademarks and stuff and you can do that and there's a lot of people that give free pro bono advice and there's a lot more mentorship and startup accelerators and events going on now than when I was I was doing it like you know there was kind of no twitter where all the angel investors and all you know all the knowledge wasn't out there as it is now it wasn't it's not the same so I think there's real advantages now that I didn't have in that sense but that's really powerful just absorb go to as many networking events as possible so the first year after work I would go to events so every night I would go to an event and learn something about what I need to do even if it was something that I needed to understand for a year down the line it's amazing how much you think about the structuring of what you're doing so that you don't mess up in a year so always like think ahead one or two years that's how I I look at it, like what could go wrong one or two years or what what do we need to structure to be ready in one or two years um when that's done that's when I started to to go out with the companies and literally I did it a little bit like just guess and you know throw throw loads of emails out and see what sticks and I guess I was just like you have a bit of luck right so that's how I got Topshop um and then I had to prove it so one thing in my head, coming from a banking background, I, I know you have to ensure you know how to make money in the business to sustain it financially longer term, either straight away or like in a year, right? Don't think like we'll work out how we're going to make money. That doesn't work. You'll be in a real problem. And I see a lot of people leaving their jobs before they, they're even seeing like a penny come in. And so I kept my job for a year and a half until... I figured out what pricing model was available and that was talking to these pioneering companies. So first year we did trials for Topshop for a whole year for free. So that was 60 stores. I worked seven days a week on it. Um, you know, like lack of sleep one, two in the morning, easy, like this is easy, you know, work, um, in that sense. And then I brought on board Nando's came on board in that year and then the NHS. So that diversified my product range, and what Globetring was going to be about, and it moved it into the restaurant sector and the medical sector. Um, And what's interesting in the medical sector, you can't reuse uh, medical equipment in the UK. It's very old school health and safety compliance acts. So I had to start building a network of charities outside of the UK. So basically we now do Sierra Leone, Guinea, Kenya, Ghana, Ukraine, Libya, and they're the charities that take the medical equipment and they rebuild hospitals and now they're doing orphanages and schools. You know, we track it through data because we... Um, as we were doing this, I was realising the data is really interesting on the impact in the community. Um, so what GlowChain does, yeah, you can list items and give it away for free, but we collect something called ESG data on the giving, and that's breaking down environment, social and economic impact. And that's, we know, those diverted, who took it, did it help with employment, upskilling, who did it help, uh, did it help a community project, what did they do with it, you know, and we collect that information and case studies as infographics and data and give it back to the company and i'll I'll tell you later but years down the line this esg data has become really powerful Um, especially in the built environment you can get brilliant points lead points um, architects use it for tendering processes but this evolves over time Um, but initially the reason i did the data was for transparency and trust and adding it's a unique selling point to it's not just you're reusing and giving to a charity. So you have to ensure that there's a value to the corporate for them paying you rather than a skip or a waste company or whatever else they were using at the time. Um, and that's gradual. Like, don't put your pressure on yourself to build hundreds of things. But all I knew is that I had to make money by charging these companies a fee to list the items and it had to be cheaper than their existing model, which was incineration and landfill and dumping sites, you know, waste companies. Um, And that's how it started. And I'd say for, Three, three, four years, I was doing it on my own with the agency and pumping the money in from the clients. Um, year three, I went part-time. Uh, but by then I knew the clients were paying regularly, like annually they were renewing. And then there was an element where I got so busy, I just had to have no job. So that's the point where the risk comes in. You just have to blindly trust and jump. And that was, I'd say, year three. But the hardest year is year two because um uh of, of it because you don't have a lot of money and um I was really like you know on the bread line <laughs> with it and that's the make or break year for most businesses because that's when you know it either works or it doesn't and, and that's when you've got to be really honest with yourself um so I'd say year two was the hardest
0: so what were some of the things that in that make or break year what are some of the things that you'd say um are the tests of an idea so one of them that you mentioned is obviously being able to pay yourself, being honest about whether the revenue model yeah. works. Are there other tests that, you know, people need when they're having that honest conversation about, is this idea going to work? Is this kind of um, going to happen that, that you might suggest people are considering at that point? Yeah.
1: So um, one of the things I did is I didn't build anything to the site unless the client wanted it and either paid for it or I could afford to cover it with my expense, you know, with my costs. Um, and I did the minimal amount of possible to get it off the ground. And the first two years, the site was actually very manual. Like I was watching every item, like sometimes I'd list the items for the clients and sometimes the client, you know, the items wouldn't go. So I had to build a network. Like sometimes the client would be like, can you do Wales?" And I'm like, have I got charities in Wales? No, let me build it. So there's a lot of effort. Uh, uh, to build that so you've got to be really resistant and I always say like business is really 80% mental strength 10% business 10% craziness because you've got to have you've got to take risks like don't think you're going to pay yourself 100k a year you know like some people do and I'm like that's crazy you're not paying yourself anything (laughs) for the first two years make sure you're covered you know two years somehow Um, but um, but it's really a test of your resilience and and how you can be very honest and neutral to yourself about what works and what doesn't because you'll have a lot of challenges and year two was a real test of like oh am I doing the right thing and is this an economy and everyone's saying this isn't a business model etc etc especially the vcs right because I'm like constantly going hey will you fund me um and um and And, but what I was looking at, I looked at, well, guess what? My pipeline's growing. My customers have stayed with me for two years and I'm hearing a lot more noise in the market. So really keep your eye out on where the market's moving because, you know, by year three and year four, people were talking about sustainability more, you know, and built environment the first two years, the built environment was very, very against it. You know, like we even had like contractors trying to sabotage clients using it to make it. So they wouldn't change their behavior to change. And then so I looked at that as not like, oh, I hate them, they're doing this. I'm like, okay, what is driving that? That's behavior change. So then you switch your selling to be like, okay, we need to change behaviors. How are we going to do that? And then you go back to the client, you figure out, well, what's why are they being so resistant to it? Usually it's fear of technology, they're very old school, they think it's too much hassle right? They think it's more effort. So then I started giving free trials out and getting them on board and, you know, being a little bit more, uh, not aggressive, but confrontational with these people in the meetings, you know, as a, as a female as well, you're getting the built environment with a lot of, you know, no offense to the audience, middle-aged, bold men, white men. And, you know, they're really grumpy, right? But, but like one of the challenges we had was uh, we, we have fun with it. It's like, can we convert them, <laughs> right? And it became like a little game. And actually, they do. So what happened was they would use it. They would grumble. We would help them. They would see how easy it was. So it was all about efficiency and effortlessness, right? Even though, really, they're doing the same thing they're still calling up the skip provider they're still having to stand near the door when the lorry comes for it so they're not doing anything else the only dynamic is it's a different audience the pickup is from a charity so it was all about behavior change and i think really digging deep and understanding really why are they grumbling right don't take it personally they're doing it because they don't know anything better and and really the skill is right persuading them but You know, four years down the line, the built environment is like completely on sustainability and impact now. And so now we get them coming to us. But I'd say it was year three when I saw a real shift in the construction uh, market where they realized that they needed to find solutions. And what we provided was something super easy. The tech is not super crazy. It's not artificial intelligence. It didn't require much effort. It was mainly about the human interaction. And persuading people that predominantly worked in the basement and were forgotten about, right? Uh, giving them something important and a feeling. And the fact that when they were giving the items away and they saw the data and they saw the impact of how it helped communities gave a bit more of a human uh feel to it and ultimately we're all humans at the end of the day so that human vibe of like you actually helped a school in sierra leone have some desks and tables you know or like we have construction blocks from heathrow airport went to ghana to rebuild a hospital Do you know and we got before and after pictures that impacts a human. Like you cannot say that doesn't impact you to make you feel good, that warmth. So just don't underestimate that warmth, (laughs) uh, you know, to people because actually they see like how they've helped and all it was was a pallet of concrete blocks, you know, that would have been disposed of and, you know, uh, created even more disaster on the the carbon side and incineration. So really kind of dig deep, know your client, but also as well know don't be delusional, you know, like for me, I didn't ask my friends what the site was about, go for strangers, strangers are going to be honest, you know, and those grumpy people are the most honest you'll get to to get your product right, Um, because your friends will just say, yeah, it's great, and I don't want to, I don't want to hear, it's great, I want to hear, where where really do you think there could be an improvement, you know, so you have to be really, um, uh, don't take it personally, and don't, don't, don't be too precious on what you like about something.
0: I really love uh, this encounter with the grumpy people um, and and I think. Um if we're talking about really radical ideas for the way people want to do things, they're going to hit some grumpy people. There's going to be resistance. Do you have, um, I want to know what your, your best conversion tactics are. I love this idea of collecting the, the kind of benevolent data, or kind yeah. of getting them to witness or experience it. Obviously that's good. But when you're in that boardroom or, or in that, um, networking event where you're you're cornered this person and they're they're giving you the grumpies what 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 should you have in your arsenal um yeah I mean if they're really offish just be really blunt the <laughs>
1: back uh, and that goes when that's from my banking days when we used to talk with breakers right they're really like we just want it quick 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 um but but normally um it's usually about like Sometimes, like if they're really difficult, I'm like, okay, I hear you, I get it. It's the classic challenges you're telling me. But we've got 500 companies using it. You know, like I'd be like, these are your competitors using it. Why are they using it? You're not. So There's a little bit of like, oh yeah, why am I not? But also, I'm, i I say to them, what will it take for you to use it? Like, what is your block with the site that you're not using? And then they will seriously think about it, and they'll either realize there isn't one. And they've got no excuse or they'll tell you and then having your ammunition of sales skills, you know, all those challenges, because you're going to hear the same things. You know, it'll be like, oh, health and safety. It's like, guess what? We have health and safety documents on our system. You know, tick, you know, like usually the challenge is. The challenges are not really what they're saying. There'll be the odd occasion. There'll be something, but then you know, like for one, we had a construction firm. They were like, "We don't really want charities people coming on really dangerous demolition sites." I get it, right? That's a that's a, prop, a real challenge. So, oh, I said, "Well, we haven't got what you need completely." However, what what would you say of using your own? Construction providers, like so the suppliers that already come on site, that have all the liability and the insurances, and know that company in and out. Right, so they're in and out of those dangerous constructs every day. So I said, what if we could connect that supplier through an API through our system to offer logistics to so those charities? So you don't even have the charity turn up. You have your known supplier that's been working with you for ten years, picking up, and they can actually make some. Revenue out of it would that help? So I said that to one, and he was like, "Absolutely." So it's sort of thing. So then I'll look at it from a commercial angle, going, "Okay, is this something all the construction companies might want?" So then we go out and ask them, right? Because I won't build something just for one client. Unless they're paying me a lot of money. That's that's how strict you've got to be. Do you know? So that, that's how you've always got to look at it. It's like, is this solution helping a lot of people with ultimately the same problem? Because sometimes you'll go with that and going, we're, we're thinking of building this. Is this something that would make you use Globetree more? And they're going to go, oh my God, yes. Or, oh no, I'm not so bothered. Do you know? So then you can gauge how many clients will want that feature. Um, and, and you don't even have to do it through high tech api integrations you can do a manual setup to test it because that's what we'll do we'll do a manual setup where we see how many people quote to use their logistics but we also manage expectations with the client so i'll say listen because you want charities to now pay this specific logistics firm it might not be that competitive based their man and van or their own logistics so they're gonna you might have less charities requesting the items so whereas like the average is 10 people will request those items. You might only get three people requesting because they might not want to use the logistics as long as you're happy that your take-up rate might reduce. However, your liability and your health and safety and your compliance and your insurance is ticking the boxes for, for, for all that. If you're happy with that compromise, that's absolutely fine from our side. And usually they are, you know, but it is just being very honest about if you expect people to spend you know, hundred pounds or 50 pounds more on the logistics, you're going to get less requests, but you're really going need one for someone to pick up. Right. So, um, so that's the kind of level of conversation we have, um, with them sometimes.
0: But I like this idea that you're like, not just building it for one person, that idea of speaking yeah. to many people and not kind of spending money just to, to please. You've also got this whole, um, uh, consciousness to your business. So as you were building it, you had um, values. And can you talk a little bit about you, your values, where they come from, and and how do you set limits around that? I mean, especially yeah. as you were bootstrapped and then you, you went to get invested. So in as you were seeking investment and growing... Uh, How do you, did you create kind of a vision statement or something for your, for who you wanted to be? Did you stick to that or did it evolve and, and um, how realistic is it when you're trying to get funding and etc to have a really value based business?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think actually that's really important with or without funding, if you're going to fund something or not, right? Because not everything needs venture capital funding. But um, I never understood until I went for VC funding, the importance of like culture, values and ethics, because ultimately it was me for four years. And I have my own ethics, integrity, culture. And this is the reason I'm building this model, right? Because I do believe businesses in the future will have to do profit and good. And it's going to be ingrained in their foundations rather than oh we've got pro bono budget we've got charity budget it's not it's not going to work like that going forwards you know and as we know consumers are really driving this economy on many levels ethical all the way through to business so um for me when I was hiring a team internally the culture was important with the people coming on board so everybody can say like oh you're doing an impact but for me the type of person that I needed to help build the business was somebody that um, com- was commercially minded that understood we are a startup. You know, we have board meetings, we have reporting, we have metrics, we, we work like business, but we work 10 times the speed. We're a little bit dysfunctional because we're guessing half the time what we're doing but but ultimately we've got this drive of believing in the impact as well and actually believe it or not it's very difficult to find people that are socially conscious and commercially minded At the same time, because it's ultimately we've been ingrained in society that that's two separate things. Right. You can't make money and do good. Like, you know, it doesn't it doesn't bode well with some people. But um, so finding that alignment is part of our culture. And then and then from the people that I started to hire, you get a culture in the office naturally. Right. They create the culture. So you see the type of vibe in the office. You know, like we like to have fun, but they work really hard. Do you know, but they believe in it, like they believe we can make this really big and make an impact. And, you know, like sometimes you're so involved in the business side, especially me running around and thinking like three years ahead, you forget of like the impact of what a computer can do for a young child or an orphan that has some shoes. Do you know, like and when you get the stories, it's like, oh yeah, you know, I remember. It was like really nice I feel like that, you know? So there's, that, there's, there's a balance of that. So I'd say our culture is um all about um like generating impacts and and manifesting like big things right um and um and i would say that that kind of reflects the type of clients we get so the clients you know are commercial but they want it, they do genuinely the people there they do want to do good you know they want solutions they understand um, the commercial side of it as well. So, so it kind of is twofold. So I think if anyone's starting really think about it and actually it's, it's a really difficult thing to get right. You're not going to get it right straight away. You know, we went through many iterations. We had a purpose, a mission and and an objective, right? The objective was, to you know divert x amount of waste globally by 2025, right? And then what's your mission and then what's your value? And we when we hire people, we look at those values to see if they're genuinely aligned with it. Um, From a company perspective, we work with anyone because if they've approached us, it means they want to do something. There's a couple of areas we tend not to touch and that's kind of gambling um, and tobacco. Um, But you know, never say never. It's not like it's a never. But like if they genuinely want to change, you know, we'll, 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 we'll have a look at it. But um, but generally for me, it's about any company or company should be sustainable and generating impacts because that's going to be the future. Um, so, so you know, we're here to enable that transition for them.
0: When you you talked about going into the kind of corporate side of it, what about reaching out to those charities or those kind of and people who work with? To pick. Was that Did that require a different kind of language, a different kind of conversation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. From um, a marketplace, product perspective, terminology. And don't forget, different countries have different ways of saying it. So we have German, we have Spanish, we have French, we have Arabic. Very, very different in the way the charities will interact uh based on like ethics pride integrity you know german german language is crazy like the different different ways and on on web it's very different and very difficult because uh, it's very long words. so you've got to think of things even on a mobile like how is it going to fit on the mobile and you know there's all those things you have to think about longer term but um from from a charity perspective it's like uh, what what are we giving value to them why would they use us so it's about talking to them. So at the beginning I did go and meet every charity and I worked with every network and, you know, like charities are on my WhatsApp still, (laughs) you know, like talking to me about, have you got this? that. but you know, as you grow, you have to find a way of scaling that because I can't speak to every charity. Right. But at the beginning it was about what do you need? Why do you need it? um, you know, what would help you? And, you know, charities give us feedback all the time about the system and how it can help them and, you know, what's useful for them. And that's always ongoing. Um, I think year two and three, you know, the, the charities went online, if that makes sense. So I pulled back a little bit from talking to them cause we had enough of a network. Um, and then really that's when marketing kicks in, right? We do everything digitally and promote and it takes time. Like there's many different avenues to reach out the charities and you've just got to find your kind of secret secret source with that in that way uh, but for sure it's a very different conversation and even as a marketplace we have to ensure that the messaging uh, a charity if they go on there by mistake and didn't know about us would they understand who we are versus a company would they understand from our website um that is the tricky bit do you know especially with marketplaces when you have a product you've got a niche group of people, but with charities, it's like we work on network effect. So it's about, we need volumes of charities because at any one point, we don't know what those charities or the small businesses or those other members need from our site. You know, one minute they need a hundred chairs, the next minute they might need a coffee machine or actually they want wallpaper or paint, do you know? So, so it's not like we know that charity always wants concrete blocks, for example. Um, So yeah, it's, um, it's, I'd definitely say that's more challenging because they're smaller and they're harder to find than the companies because they don't have budgets. You know, they're not they're not shouting, hey, you know, can can we talk to this person, this person? They're struggling, you know, financially, especially with um, with the situation now in covid you know they're very cash poor and they haven't had much funding from government so how can we help them with giving free assets you know we don't we don't charge them for doing anything they but they have to pay for the logistics and the reason we made a decision for them to get um pay for the logistics is because historically when people have got things for free there's that lack of respect of turning up if it was just everything was free whereas like if they make a commitment to pay for the logistics a they're making a commercial decision on picking those items b there's less likely to be a no-show because that money is very valuable so you know is it worth me spending 100 pounds on a man and van to pick up those 10 units yes because those 10 units are worth thirty thousand pounds to me do you know they would have had to buy it so um there's many dynamics it's um you know and and if you think about our system we can't control any of the people that use our system so the 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 product itself as our service needs to have a language that's universal for everyone to understand and feel, feel comfortable with it um and that's an ongoing process like i'm not saying we've got it right you know but we we ask for feedback all the time on our site. so that's another thing always ask
0: Did you have any ideas that actually you abandoned along the way? Um, I'm
1: sure many, but I can't think of, I wouldn't say a major one because I was very strict on not adding things. I think what changed was the order I did them in. (laughs) Like, you know, something bigger came up, for example. Um, I'm just trying to think if there was like, no, I would say one on the logistics side, we have an API integration to do reverse logistics. I'd say that was delayed rather than um, not done. Um, and it was delayed because actually the technology wasn't quite, there wasn't many companies doing it well uh, in the first couple of years. And now there's a lot of, lot of people doing a really good job. So actually the timing's better for it to be done now uh, with it. And also we've got more data on, on what's going on. Um, no, I can't say from a product. No, actually, it's a good question. Never been asked that before.
0: <laughs> so I start with my idea. I'm going to do lots of research, talk to as many people as I can. Then, um, at some point, I'm going to kind of make some choices about the kind of business that I want to run. Yeah, and whether actually this one is going to make enough money to support itself and exactly. support other yeah. people. Um, yeah. and I guess um, after I I do all of that. Uh, Is there, is there, what's, and I've, I'm kind of rolling along and, and growing. What's, what's next? Is it another idea? Is it continual improvement? What's that? What are, do you have suggestions around the culture within the organization? You know, do you, do you, do you all of a sudden jump into a different area or do you stick with what you're doing or what, 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 what do you see? Yeah.
1: Um, um, no, I don't think jump. I think um, it's really that's probably like a failure of startups, right? Trying to do too many features and all singing and dancing. I think do one thing really, really well, and and really be amazing at it. You know, like like for us, like stick to UK, earn good money out of the UK, really overexhaust it, and then move to the next city. Right? We did something a little bit that was always our focus. We moved into Spain not because I was like, hey, let's do Spain now, like if it was up to me, actually, we still wouldn't be in, we wouldn't be in Spain, you know, as uh, we would just be UK building up UK. But um, the reason Spain came up is because we were having clients here wanting Spain and pushing us and pushing us. And we didn't just have one client. We had like five clients. So we're like, okay, we'll test it. And, but the thing is I only tested it when I had a team that were able to take on the volume. So be really wary of like, workload on people because it's a lot of work. And um I've said no to like growing too quickly. Like we've been out of China and Russia and it's been really like really like commercially um incentivized to do it. And I've said no because you gotta think of like, you know, we're a team of seven people. Like we can't do more than four places all at once, even though actually we're better than most because we are marketplace. So scalability is easier for us because we're one platform. We can be global, like straight away. Um, But there's elements of know know your bandwidth, know how far you can stretch yourself. But um, definitely after you said you've done all that and structured people and everything, you've just got to jump like really you got to jump but then you're learning new things like what does my team look like who do i need for this stage like do you know what type of person do i need to build this next level do i need an ideas person do i need somebody who's super amazing on spreadsheets like you know so um, that that is a learning on the job trial and error and you know things like recruiting people you'd be surprised how um, hard it is to find really good talent. <laughs> you you make an assumption because you're around good people all the time because, you know, you're the entrepreneur and good people know good people. But, you know, once you open the door, <laughs> you get everything and anything, and as a CV. So you have to really hone your skill and learn very quickly uh, what's good, what's not. And you will make mistakes. Like, for sure, I've made so many bad hires. Uh, but you have to uh, fire quickly. Like, it's painful, but you have to just do it quick because – Ultimately, it's going to it's going to be bad for business. Um, And that's one thing from a VC point of view they will they will look at. You know, the skill of hiring is um, quite underestimated, I'd say. It's quite tough.
0: So zooming out a bit to how you see the circular economy um, evolving right now um, and growing and also whether anything's changed for you post COVID.
1: Yeah, so um after four years of bootstrapping, I got funding. So I got VC funding just under a mil and um and the reason I got it is because the circular economy existed and we have paying clients retained. <laughs> so going to a VC and going, the circular economy is worth $4.3 trillion. I can take X amount of that market, and this is how I'm gonna do it. That's that's the process you go for VC. Um, And then they understand and they get it and they take a risk, obviously, um, at seed stage on that side. Um, Going forwards, uh, what we found actually is the circular economy, even though people don't maybe understand circular economy or don't have never heard of the word circular economy, um, if you look at the drivers in the market at the moment, um, you know, especially Gen Z millenniums, they've been talking about impact, sustainability, you know, no fur, organic food for quite a while now. This is all kind of circular economy and feeds into that food waste. So, all of that is helping us, right? It's like nudging us in the right direction. So, we have to. Follow, we we are ahead of that wave, but also you've got to ride that wave as well and find the angles that help you. And definitely, what COVID's been very interesting. Yes, everybody's had challenges and in a startup. We have challenges as well um, from a fundraising perspective and you know keeping people motivated and and all that kind of stuff. Is actually what we've seen is com- companies have still been talking to us. We signed two global contracts in COVID in the first couple of months, which was unbelievable considering like you didn't think they'd have money. Um, But also we've done many quotes for when we come out of COVID properly come September to start projects again, particularly in construction. And um, for me, that is a big sign that people are pushing ahead and sustainability is one of their priorities and it's become more than a nice to have right it's about differentiation now and i think what what we've seen in covid from a consumer side as well is people are more health conscious now because they've had time out right they're on furlough it's kind of long-term holiday and rehab (laughs) right so so a lot of people are reflecting on their lives their health uh, their living arrangements. They've realised they don't need that much money to live off anymore. They can sustain themselves. You know, it's all about health, well-being, and you know, ultimately, like COVID is a disease. It's really about chemicals and things going on in the environment that are not good for us, right? So, so it's kind of given it a boost in in a bit of a, a way that's come kind of like left-wing, right? Which has really worked for us, um, and and also from a company perspective, they're still the CEOs and boards are looking at the circular economy as this is our new business model. And I think this is the perfect time to test it because because new business models don't have... uh, performance records on profitability right so a big company to talk to shareholders a year ago and say we want to completely change our business model we don't know if we're going to make profit in a few years but just bear with us and be patient they're not going to say that right but what's happened now is guess what they're not making profit a lot of these companies are really in disaster stage right they're really like on the brink so to change their business model now actually is a low risk <laughs> strategy for them. So this is a perfect time to reinvent themselves. And some people are going to do it amazing. Some people are not, right? Um, and that's just, that's just economics. Um, but I think this is the perfect time to, to set up a business, actually, for anyone that can afford to do so, or luckily still has a job and, and can do something on the side. And this is probably where all the new businesses come out. Because you're, you're seeing people talk about ESG data. You're seeing people talk about, like, is my food healthy? You're seeing people like, oh, look at all the waste and all the e-commerce, the products that haven't been bought. What are they going to do with them selling the warehouses? Guess what? They incinerate them. So, like, that's not good. Carbon emissions, so on, you know. So this. There's many aspects to this and supply chain with COVID. We've seen supply chain collapse because we rely on stuff from China because it's so cheap. So there's going to be local supply chains going forward. Like there's so many things like that. So people can think of like, okay, can we have a localised supply chain for produce? Um, What does that look like? Guess what? We're going to make it sustainable from day one because that's what people want. So, you know, and I think small businesses as well will come out the woodwork. You know, the high streets are closing down. There's elements of localized shopping, like people are uh, going to parks and supporting businesses more local now. They're not really in central London so much, right? Um, so so there's people just need to look around and see what's going on because actually some really positive things coming out of it.
0: So in a way, all of this disruption that we've gone through has made it easier for us to say you know, how, evaluate what we're doing and think about how to do it differently. And then that's where becoming more circular might come in, making different choices come in, or a whole new business idea. Or, or And it's actually an, an opportune time because the grumpies are not as stuck in their ways as they were a few months ago. The,
1: yeah, the grumpies have been disrupted so much. They're <laughs> happy just to have anything, you know? So 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 that's what you need to kind of like look at. And like what do startups do or businesses do? They disrupt, Right. And you've got massive disruption at the moment, and you can you can definitely for sure work it in your favour. Um, I'm not saying it's going to be an easy ride, but but for sure, like some of the best companies, if you look historically, have come out of like recessions. Um, so so I you know I don't think it's a bad time for somebody to do something, and especially if they've just got made redundant. Right, sometimes you need that push because. When you have nothing, you've got a lot to gain, you know? So, uh, so people need to like, look at it like blessings in disguise sometimes, not saying everybody, but, but that's, that's how I see it.
0: Bringing it back to that idea. I really like how you talked about solving a problem you've seen. So it, would that be your advice to people who are, you know, saying they, they're looking for an idea. They're looking for that first moment. Would it be look around you and,
1: and, and. Yeah. Look around and ask questions. That's. It's the best thing you're going to, it'll be, it's, it's amazing what you'll hear if you just like, listen. Um, And I'd say that's the, that's all you need to do because you'll just get inspired by something like that. Like, um, you know, don't like look at something going, I'm going to do that, but in a different color, (laughs) unless you think you can do it better. You know, Uh, I always make the impression of like dating sites. It's like, do we need another dating site? Do we need another taxi cab company like Uber? Not really. You know, we've got enough um but you know like how can we how can we create like you know let's get innovation back you know it's it's a great time to innovate and you've you've got to take risks like anyone thinking that this is low risk uh needs to just go and get a job (laughs) and do something as a hobby
0: I just want to thank you for talking to me today about your, your radical idea and how you made it happen and, um, and how other people can kind of start, try to take their ideas and, and grow them into proper businesses as you've done. And if people want to find out more about GlobeChain or learn about it, where, what do they do? Yeah, you
1: can just go on our site, globechain.com. And, um, and yeah, and if you, if you want, you can contact us on the form if you've got any ideas. And yeah, and, and just go on and, and push it out to as many charities and small
0: businesses you know to use it. So all these people who are perhaps downsizing their offices right now.
1: Absolutely. Downsizing offices, charities that require inventory assets, products, um or on the flip side big companies as well, you know, that have a lot of stock in their warehouses. It's it's really it's like anyone.
0: <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Thank you Christine. If you enjoyed this podcast and you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash the developer UK. If you have a radical rethink idea about how we need to make spaces between the buildings differently, whether it's policy, practice or design, you can send it to editorial at the This podcast has been brought to you by the developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray and you can reach me on Twitter at TC Murray.